Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We are continuing a series that uh, we've been going the last three weeks in, which is Priest, Prophet, King, leading up to Easter. These are all offices that we see in the Scriptures, and these are offices that we see come together in the person of Jesus. And it's really interesting. Um, it was, as was hinted at, um, uh, not hinted at, mentioned in the announcements uh, by Liddy that um, last week there was things which happened both in the nine o'clock and the 11, both very different. Been hearing people who are in the nine and the 11 catching up and sharing and comparing notes. Um, I won't go into all of that now, but just the summary that God is turning up in quite unexpected ways. So last week in the nine, I think we got to like, what, communion? And then the run sheet was out the window. And I think we had like an altar call after communion, uh, which is not normal if you're new to church. And honestly, the 11, I don't even remember what happened. And a lot of that, I remember being deeply moved and, and touched by the spirit. And it was just an incredible time, uh, both of those. And what was really interesting is uh, we put a little video up because we're getting people like, what happened to the nine? I wasn't there this week. Something happened or something happened at the 11. We're trying to explain that. So Britt and I went into the um, um, just prayer room and just tried to capture it for our community here at Red. And we put up on Instagram and um, a couple of things happened. Um, uh, we just started getting contacted by people from Red. It'd been impacted. But the second thing happened as well is that churches um, from all over the place um, started getting in contact and saying that they've had similar things happen over the last few weeks and not in the normal places that you expect those things to happen. So it's been fascinating comparing notes. It's a little bit at the moment, like everyone's like, what's going on? Something's going on, isn't it? Like something is happening. Well, exactly. We're not 100% sure what it is, but we know it's from God and we know that it's good. And so I wanted to touch on that, but also I wanted to continue this series and really the two things have come together because I think actually where God has us in this series speaks into this moment. I also want to say in talking to people about last week and talking to people about the, I guess, the themes that God has us in the moment and also talking to people in other churches and other places who are experiencing this, there's two tracks at the moment. Um, there is this thing where there's this hunger and anticipation, a sense that God's about to do something. We see the little sprigs of new life and new growth. And people are saying at the same time that is happening, there also seems to be in tr- tremendous contest for what's going on. If you're feeling that contest, uh, you're not alone. Uh, last Sunday was one of the great highlights for me at Red large parts of this week were rubbish <laughs> and full of some the like, craziest spiritual attack stuff like I've experienced in my life, like bonkers. Um, and I think that's part of the season because we're contending. What God is doing at the moment, we are contending for God to move. And we see in the scriptures when great men and women went before God and in prayer contended for their cities, contended for their cultures, contended for their nations for God to move. We see that in the church history when people contended for God's to move in times and places. And I think that's where we're being moved into. I feel we've come to the end of a time in the Australian church, which I think aligns with the time in the world over the last 30 years where the world was very nice and planned and managed and everything seemed to work 
and things start, to, the wheels are coming off a bit. And the wheels could come off a bit more. In fact, I think they probably will. So I think God is preparing us. He's preparing us for the next season. And I felt like what happened in the nine last week, if I could capture it, was God was like, stop. No more. Like, we're not just going to keep doing the same thing every week. And it's not even the same thing. It's more the same attitude where we just go, oh, this is Australia. Australia is an increasingly secularizing place. And we don't like that. We also like comfort. And I think God was like, no. So something's up. And I think what we're going to look at today really intersects beautifully in this moment. So I'd love to begin with a scripture. It's a scripture God's actually had us in a lot lately. And as we talk about king, just before we do, I'm just going to go ahead and catch you up with this. So here we go. The three elements, three roles that we see Jesus fulfilling. Prophet, which we spoke about last week. Britt preached on it last week. Well, not if you're in the nine. Um, <laughs> it's still up if you're at the 11. Um, the week before, I, I, I preached on uh, a priest, and, and this week is king, and then next week we're going to tie it all together, and, and, and Britt's going to preach on how this comes together in the person of Jesus. So that's the basic plan. Um, and what's interesting is that when you look at also how humans are created, that God, when he creates humans, all of these roles, all these functions are also part of us. So the reason Jesus fulfills them is that actually he's bringing something together that the fall pulls apart. So all of these are in humans at the beginning in creation, but when the fall, when humans sin and pursue their own ends, their own means, what happens is that the roles become dislocated from each other. So when we see in the scriptures, you'll see people who are prophets, you'll see people who are kings, and you'll see people who are priests. But what Jesus does is reintegrate them. More on that next week. But what I want to hit today is king. And to give us some context for king, because king is a slightly weird one. Like you're probably like church, prophet, I get that. Someone who speaks for God, I get it. You're probably like church, priest, I get it. And I can sort of, you know, yes, I talked about, you know, like a reflector of God's glory in the world. I get that. But to think of yourself as a king or a queen is perhaps slightly strange today. We have a king now, King Charles. And so the idea of kingship, presidents, prime ministers is very far away from us. So let's look at this biblically though. Genesis 1 verses 18 to 19. So God created mankind in his own image. Short sentence, big concept. You're created in the image of God. You reflect something of God. All of the battles you've probably had over who you are, your identity, so often miss the key, key reality that you're created in God's image. The people next to you are created in God's image. Humans are created in the image of God. It goes on. In the image of God, he created them, just so in case you didn't get that. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, as I said, when we talk about kings, we can think of King Charles or a president, but we don't really relate it to ourselves. 
And that means we can secularize it. We can think about this in purely political or governance terms. Nevertheless, this kind of royal role, this kingship, this queenship, are actually deeply spiritual concepts. The political comes second to the spiritual. Now, I'm not going to give here an argument for monarchy or an argument against monarchy, but what I am going to do is talk about how we understand this as people trying to know more about Jesus. Because at the core of what a king or a queen is, is someone who has been given authority over a particular domain. They are called to rule over creation, Adam and Eve, and rule as stewards in the Hebrew shoma, guardians. So therefore, when kings and queens, in the biblical sense, exercise that authority, that responsibility, that dominion in a just and beneficial way, good things happen. So there's actually a healthy way to think about kingship. My friend Roshan, um, he recently was, I think last year, in uh, Oxford. He attended this lecture he was telling me about at Oxford College, and there was someone there who was making a really interesting argument. And the argument that they were making was that for 2,000 years, pretty much, or most of Western history, the dominant moral figure that has shaped our culture is Jesus. But this guy was arguing that that's flipped. And in the last sort of half century, the dominant moral figure to influence the West is no longer Jesus, but Hitler, but in a negative sense. So we've gone from be like Jesus to don't be Hitler. And what this means is, there's a, like, yes, we do not want to be like Hitler. But also what this can do is therefore any sense of when we talk about authority or responsibility or leadership, we have a moral framework in our head of like, just don't be like any of that stuff because that's so icky and dangerous, I don't want to get near it. So we back away. So we live in this really awkward uncomfortability thing where we need responsibility, we need stewardship, we need leadership, yet we're sort of really, really uncomfortable with it. Particularly add that to Australia, a country with a long history of resentment of authority, and you're rocking. So to understand kingship, we really need to understand what is dominion or responsibility. Dominion is the authority to rule over a particular domain. And this is what underpins the idea. And the concept of dominion and rule is central to the biblical narrative. Because when we see how the scriptures begin, what God does is at the beginning of scriptures, we have this beautiful image where what he does is he takes the unformed earth, which is chaotic, and then through the act of creation, he brings order to the chaotic. So key definition, if you're taking notes, write this down, what dominion and responsibility and cultivating and stewarding is in a biblical sense is bringing order to where there is chaos, and that is creation. Bringing order to chaos, and that is creation. Now again, because we think about this in terms of King Charles or Anthony Albanese or Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin or whoever, we don't apply it to us. We don't think, oh, I don't have real a kingdom. I don't have a nation state. I don't have a state. But Dallas Willard says this. Every last one of us has a kingdom or a queendom or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own where our choice determines what happens. 
Here is a truth that reaches into the deepest part of what it is to be a person. A kingdom, our kingdom, is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we generally have the say over is in our kingdom. And having our say, the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. In creating human beings, God made them to rule, to reign, to have dominion in a limited sphere. This means my boys, who just turned 12, they have a kingdom. It's not big. It's their bedroom. And there is challenges around cultivation and stewardship and bringing order to chaos. Uh, but they have a kingdom. And when you're a baby, you've got nothing. But as you grow older, it grows. Now, there are people in this room who have work responsibilities where you actually also have a bigger kingdom at your work. You might be responsible for team members or staff. Some of you have parental or familial responsibility. Every person in this room, it may be smallish, it may be bigger, but you have a kingdom or a queendom. You may, because of the force of your personality, your charm, your charisma, maybe even your looks, actually have influence over people. Some of you might have academic qualifications, which mean that people listen to you. Some of you might have financial means behind you, which mean that your area of governance is a bit bigger and can influence further than some other people. All of us have this, and 21st century culture is desperately uncomfortable about talking about it, but it's real, it's everywhere. You encounter this all the time. And so what we are then called to do is recognize what we all have, and then we're called to steward it. We're called to look at that area which we have control over, even if it's just a, a young boy's bedroom. And we're called to bring what is chaotic to order. And when we do this, this is what we call culture. Culture is what emerges when chaos is brought to order and it leads to fruitfulness. But for fruitfulness to emerge, for chaos to be turned into order, we have to do something. Now, I know that sermons are places where we're used to hearing biblical words and we're used to hearing, um, you know, terms that are very uplifting and edifying. And this is not a stand-up comedy gig. So the kind of language that is heard in a stand-up comedy gig is not what you hear on a pulpit. But I wanted to say a word, and it's going to be offensive, and I'm just going to put that out there now. Uh, they may bleep this out on the podcast. But culture, are you ready? Okay, so I'm just hoping you're not too prudish and you're not going to come for me afterwards. But I'm going to use a word that's very offensive today. Like it's bad. All right, you ready? Culture, fruitfulness, emerges when we take, okay, you ready? Responsibility. <laughs> Hugely offensive today. Like worse than any swear word. This is God's way. This is God's way. He deferred authority to us and gave us responsibility in the world. And when Israel demanded a king in 1 Samuel 8, 
God was like, you, you guys really knowing what you're getting yourself into here. Because once you have someone rule over you, it means that your freedom is restricted in a particular way. And stuff will happen. And so the world in our day and age does not encourage us to take responsibility. Instead, our world encourages us to run from responsibility. Instead of responsibility, we are to pursue experience, adventure, all great stuff, relationship, and actually posits freedom and enjoyment as a polar opposite to responsibility. But when we have this mentality, we become spiritually poor. Now, to focus on this, I want to dig into the story of a king. Now, in the Old Testament, as I said, 1 Samuel 8, the people ask for a king because the nations have kings. And God's like, you really want to do this? And like, yes. And then what you see is this cavalcade of different kings, which do not rule justly because of the fall. They do not exercise their responsibility, and they go to various extremes. Now, the extreme most of us are aware of is the corrupt, violent, overarching king or queen. We've got that. Again, our culture doesn't want to be hit like that's our dominant moral framework. Everything you learn at university, everything you learn in the workplace, everything is don't be Hitler. Okay, so I'm not going to focus on that. What I do want to focus, I mean, yes, definitely, I'm just going to say this one more time. Do not be Hitler, please. Okay, we've got that. If you're going to take responsibility. Okay, so I want to talk about another thing that happens, which I think is actually far more prevalent than becoming a kind of dictator. And to get there, I want to read from a story of a king. And it comes from the book of Kings which is like so much of that is a how not to do dominion and responsibility is a subtext of what the book of Kings is and how God needs to come into that space because of the fall. So we get to a particular king in the book of Kings and it's just this cavalcade of this king comes and he did wrong in the eyes of God and he worshipped that which he wasn't meant to worship and that led them into corruption and violence and terrible things. And he just keeps repeating and repeating. We get to kiss king, King Ahab. And King Ahab is meant to lead the people of God from chaos into order. He's meant to lead them into worshipping because the pattern was the king was meant to bring everything under the ultimate dominion of God and responsibility of God. And therefore to take responsibility as a deferred authority under God's authority. But Ahab doesn't do this. Ahab wants one foot in the camp with the God stuff, because that's his heritage. But then he's got another foot where he also wants to do it in his own way. And so he worships the gods of the nations. He marries a woman who's from the nations who worship various gods, like gods like Baal. And then we find this thing where he's in this particular moment, and I'm going to read a story, and we're going to pick it apart. First Kings 21, verses 1 to 16. Let's talk about his kingship. Sometimes later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your, ve- let me have your, your vineyard. I'm going to use it for a vegetable garden. This is close to my palace. And we all want a veggie garden near a house, you know, even kings with palaces. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, 
the Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, this is key. Two things here. A king who has got a massive area which he is governing over, a kingdom. It's massive. And he's got money and influence. So he can, I can pay you. I can give you another one. Tremendous influence. But he actually doesn't know where it begins and ends. Naboth, poor bloke we just encounter in this moment, says he doesn't want the money. He doesn't want a better and bigger vineyard, perhaps even in a better place. He knows what God has given him to have responsibility over. And it's the thing that has been passed on to him by his ancestors. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So the story goes on with Naboth knowing his responsibility for the maintenance of the boundaries of the area of responsibility that God has given him. So Ahab went home sullen and angry. Note well, sullen and angry. Because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And I love this. This is a king. This is the most powerful bloke in the entire land. And what's he doing? He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But now he said, I will not give up my vineyard. It's got an adult tantrum. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city within him. Really interesting. He's having a tantrum. Someone else then steps into what he's responsible for. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king. And then take him out and stone him to death. Little moment echo. Innocent person on unfair charges with two criminals placed on either side who was killed. Just one of those beautiful echoes that go all through the scriptures pointing towards the crucifixion. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city, again, if you know your New Testament, if you know the crucifixion story, outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard that both Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. This is a story of someone not taking responsibility for what they're called to take responsibility for and pressing into other people's areas of governance. There is instructive things we can learn about this. Number one, when we get into a moment and when we are worshipping that which is not God, which Ahab was doing, this will create a crisis inevitably in our lives. 
It'll happen a crisis in an individual and it'll happen a crisis in a culture. When it is worshiping that which is not God, it will enter into a crisis and it because only God in his inexhaustibleness can fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts. So when you don't fill that, what happens is you go looking for stuff that's not going to fill it. And for some strange reason, Ahab, despite having everything, palace, king of Israel, he wants this garden because he's hungry for stuff. He wants more. And often what happens is when we hit these moments of transition or wilderness, a a tough period because we're reaching the end of ourselves and our human abilities, or we're worshiping that which is not God, often what we will do is at that moment, we will seek superficial remedies. We've seen this. We have a global pandemic and every person is like, oh, I think I'm gonna move here or move down the beach or do this. I'm gonna learn to be a, a juggler. I don't know a single person who learned to be a juggler in the pandemic. I don't know where that came from. But in times of uncertainty and chaos, what we can do is we want to take control over something. And instead of actually taking dominion over that which we're responsible for, we move the chairs around on the Titanic. So we can make superficial moves. There's moving houses, jobs, cities, relationships. And look, hear me right. I'm not saying any of this is bad. Some of you may have done that. I'm not saying that it's bad. But when it is done as an answer to a spiritual hole, we're in trouble. So moving houses, jobs, cities, relationships, not bad in of itself. But I think there's also something happening at times when this stuff happens because we're constantly told we just need to change the external stuff and never deal with the spiritual issues. So number one, we seek superficial remedies. New relationship, new haircut, buy that, do this. The second thing is we get passive and succumb to paternalism. We get passive and succumb to paternalism. Just look at Ahab, a king for goodness sake, with an army. Like you don't get to be king unless you're a pretty impressive figure. You rock around in armor. You've got a retinue. You've got a court. You've got an army. And what do we have? Ahab is on his bed like, no, I'm not coming out. Give me the vineyard, mum. And what does he do in that moment? He seeks for someone to come in and do it for him. And Jezebel steps in. And I think this is so indicative of our society today where everywhere people are frustrated and they want things in a particular way and we look for someone to do it. The government, bosses at work, the head of that venue we just went to. We we get all of this massive cultural upheaval at the moment where people are looking for some great authority figure to come in and make it all right and take responsibility for what we're actually called to take responsibility of. For years, people talked about helicopter parenting. We are now into helicopter everything. Where someone somewhere, can't someone somewhere do something about this? This doesn't feel right. Someone come in and do something about this. What people don't realize is 
You can only appeal to someone to make everything right if you have a tremendously huge, powerful figure over you who is able to manage the world through their sheer power into something better. So either two things happen. Either you go to God or you get a dictator. Or you just live in this passive waiting for someone to do it. I'm going to send an email to the authorities. I'm unhappy. And we slowly morph into passive. We want someone to do the hard stuff while we remain likable and nice. And what this does is it stunts our growth and development as a person. We remain as little boys and little girls. When that doesn't work and the paternalism and the figure doesn't come, and what's happening in our world is the paternal figures that we look to are actually starting to struggle to run the world because it's getting real complex now. Is we start to get frustrated. We get passive. We go from passive to passive-aggressive and start blaming. Because ultimately, when you take responsibility, what you do is you actually create respect. When you take responsibility, you create respect in yourself and others. You can be a nice person that no one respects. Healthy responsibility is like fertilizer to relationships. But when you don't have these things, you start to lash out at others and at ourselves. So a biblical understanding of dominion and kingship must call us to reject such forms of paternalism and instead take responsibility for our own lives and domains. Okay, what I want to do now is I want to bring in what I think God is doing at this point in time. We're in the King Sermon, but I want to now link this to what I think the bigger thing God is doing in the world. I read a quote last week, and it hit me. And it's from a clinical psychologist who's a Christian, and he's lectures in psychology and Christian psychology and pastoral care at Vanderbilt University in the United States, and he's done this for like 40 years or more. His name is Bruce Rogers Vaughan. And he makes this interesting comment. He's literally done, he listed like 40,000 or something like counseling sessions. And he makes this point. He says, the average individual I encounter in the clinical situation today is not the same as the person who sat with me 30 years ago. The average individual I encounter in the clinical situation today is not the same as the person who sat with me 30 years ago. So people have changed. Something is happening. This is a bigger trend than just one or two people. He says he sees two types of people. Number one is the majority group who are filled with self-blame, anxiety, and shame, struggling with addiction. They have a fragmented self, fleeting relationships. They're increasingly less attached to community. In fact, they run from it. And they have this constant gnawing sense that something is wrong with them. That's group number one. There's a minority group he sees growing up who he says are narcissistic, super confident, entitled, and even defiant. And if you look at society, you've got, I think that's a picture of society. You've got the majority people are sort of like anxious and, and heads are spinning and what's going on. And then you've got this minority group who are like, everyone's like, what are these people doing? They're just making everything worse. And everyone's frustrated. I think this is a place that God wants to bring revival to. 
I think this is a place that God wants to bring renewal to. I think this is a place that God wants to bring awakening to. See, often when we talk about revival or awakening, what we can do and do in a, in a secular society is say, well, people are believing in God less and we just need more people to believe in God and everything's going to be hunky-dory. So what we do then is if we can just have a revival, we're just going to put more information out around of why you should believe in God and that's what's going to happen. The second thing we can do is... We're a culture, which I said earlier, doesn't pursue responsibility. What actually pursues is nicer feelings, adventure, experience. So what we can do is we can pursue a kind of revival or awakening, which is just feelings driven. Where at one time, the Holy Spirit is going to pour on us and we're just going to all feel wonderful and everything's going to be fantastic. Does that happen? Yes. Does that happen? Fantastic. Yes. Has that happened through the history of of God's people? 100%. But my concern, as I've thought about this for years, is what could happen is we could have a move of God and there's a bunch of people and and maybe they get a greater sense of the Holy Spirit's love for them, which would be beautiful and wonderful, and that's fantastic. So over here, just imagine secularism. We, We deal with this through more people believing in God, more greater feelings. But my great concern is what's going to happen is over here is another realm. Let's call this the realm of us taking dominion and responsibility for our lives so that our individual lives are not filled with chaos and brokenness where what actually uh, Rogers says, Roger, where are you, Roger, Bruce Rogers Vaughan says that we're not experiencing those things that he's describing of the, the last 30 years of people coming to him, that there's actually a breakthrough in this area And actually what we have is a revival and an awakening and a renewal in the innermost places of what we are called to take responsibility for, which is your lives. This is where we need revival. We need the church not struggling with the exact same things that the culture is struggling with. We need a church which is not falling into the greater narcissism that the culture is falling into. We need a church which is not with the culture running away from community and commitment, which is not constantly struggling with their identity. Because my fear is, I can go and, what I've found is, I can go and give a talk about why we need to believe in God and talk about how secularism is wrong and this sort of stuff, and everyone's like, brilliant. The minute I start talking about, okay, how this then affects how we actually do our lives and how we feel and what this means about our levels of commitment and devotion to God and what that looks in the real world, it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable or the room gets more empty. We need revival and renewal around our kingly and queenly purpose. Now, what's really interesting is the curse that was over Ahab was primarily a curse around worship. What was affecting him, why he behaved in that situation was, he was trying to have governance over certain things, but he wasn't bringing God above them. 
And what happens is God at this moment goes back to those patterns. And what you see in scripture is often when there is a king that goes bad, God raises one of those officers, which is a prophet. Now we learned that what a prophet does is bring the word of God. So the prophet brings the word of God and this person, Elijah the Tishbite, emerges out of, out of the, the obscurity and God brings this person to confront the king. And there's this significant spiritual battle here, which is a battle for renewal amongst the people of God. And there is this spiritual encounter, a power encounter between the priests of Baal and Elijah. And there's this moment in, I'm just going to read this this one verse, where it says in 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah's inability to bring under what God has given him authority, under God's authority, has created a double-mindedness. And I want to say this, if you're going to write down another thing, this is key. Dominion is lost when we are double-minded. Because I can just give information about why secularism is wrong and how actually here's the Christian roots of our society and all these ideas, justice and love and empathy, come from the Gospels and people are like, that's fantastic. Tom Holland, the historian's written a fantastic book on that. He's actually speaking at Christian conferences about actually the West, it's all Christian. Yeah, he's not fully following Jesus. You will find YouTube intellectuals who will tell you how everything wrong with culture and how Christianity, we're actually a Christian culture, we could accept this. Stephen Fry, committed atheist, talks about the Christian roots. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, is now going around saying, I'm a cultural Christian. So I can give you all of the intellectual reasons why secularism is wrong, but actually where we need a revival is to actually end double-mindedness where we give over everything that we have dominion and responsibility for over to God. This is the revival. This is the awakening that we're being called into. And when the Spirit comes, yes, often the first bit, like like if you can imagine the Spirit, like you're going on a date with the Spirit, Imagine you're, you finally meet this fantastic person and you go on your first date with them and they rock up with flowers or chocolates or whatever you like and they hand it to you and they're like, catch her, and they just leave. You know, I thought we going to have this fantastic dinner and get to know each other. This is the beginning of a beautiful relationship and they're just like, flowers, adios, and leave. That's what it's like with feelings in the spirit. Often the feelings of peace and the spirit coming and the things that we look for, they're just simply the chocolates or the flowers at the beginning of a beautiful relationship. But we've valued that just in of itself because our culture values feelings. So I think the last thing we need is a revival and God's going to do what he's going to do. It's not me telling God what to do with the revival, but my sense is when I look at the great awakenings that last for not just two years, but 150 years through generations is when you don't just get the flowers, but you get married to the Spirit. That's why the Spirit comes, to equip believers for the role that we were given in Genesis to have dominion. The Spirit comes to equip queens and kings for a role. It's a royal anointing. We use this language of the oil, the pouring out of the water. All this is around language, around anointing. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, 
So about David being anointed as a king, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The spirit comes to equip and anoint and empower you for the ministry of taking responsibility for the dominion that you have, whether it's your bedroom or whether it's a big company. And so our job, our job is to invite the Holy Spirit into our kingdom. Now, what's really interesting, too, is Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, 21 to 23, even Elijah, in this powerful moment of, of God's victory, even he can have this sense of defeat, this sense of, of oh, I'm, I'm almost a little bit like, he's like a little bit like Ahab here. Let me, let me hear, uh, let you hear, I'll let you hear as I read. Then Elijah said to them, am I the only one of the Lord's prophet left? But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and then put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wall and not set fire to it. What happens here is Elijah goes into this battle with the prophets of Baal. It's an incredible moment. He defeats them. God shows up. It's incredible. But there's a little bit of a lie in there that Elijah has bought. And Elijah is a little bit like Ahab here because he's like, I'm going to do this incredible power encounter. I'm going to take responsibility. Okay, I'll do it. But I'm the only prophet left. There's no one else. So if I have to do an incredible moment, I'm going to do it. Let's go. But what happens later is the God rebukes uh, Elijah and actually says there's thousands of prophets still left. And I think at this moment, what the enemy wants to do is you to think, like, my mates have walked away. I'm going to take dominion and everyone else around me is doing. But the biggest thing that God is doing in the world is God is coming and refreshing his people and God is calling a new generation to take dominion. And it's not just us which this is happening amongst. There is a bigger thing we need to say yes to. So as we say yes to taking responsibility and governance over what God has taken us to give governance and responsibility over, We need to remember this is happening in multiple places. This is an incredible moment, I think, to be a Christian. You were born at this moment for a purpose. You were not just born at this moment for an accident. At this moment where the Australian church is starting to hit decline, where we're about to see the largest demographic generation, the baby boomers, over the next 10 years are going to exit out of the church and graduate to heaven, At the moment when the good news story in the Australian church was the Pentecostal church was growing, was bucking the trend, contemporary churches were growing. Since 2016, they're in decline now. And we can get sad about that, or we can get real about that and realize why we are here. And what is not going to cut it in the next season is a church where people are not stepping into the responsibility that we have. And we need a revival, and we need a revival where we're not double-minded, but we are devoted people who turn up and ask God to move. So we're called to rule in union with him, to make our kingdom a place which aligns with his kingdom, and to create our lives as a space where there is holiness and God wants to move. 
Let's just wait on God for a moment. God, we recognize this moment. Each one of us here recognizes that there are parts of our lives where we are double-minded. We recognize that you have given us each Each person's is different here, but each of us has our own kingdom, our own queendom, our own state which we govern over. In that is how we spend our time, what we focus upon, what we worship. And God, we realize that times of decline, secularism is not just about when we believe less, it's when we're less devoted less passionate in our faith. There's less breakthrough in our ordinary lives. And God, we just want to, at this moment, recognize, like the people who Elijah spoke to in that moment, that we are often double-minded. We also recognize that we also can be like Ahab, laying on that bed, sullen, angry, complaining, critiquing, beating ourselves up, throwing arrows at other people. And God, we just pray that you'll come into this space, come into that which we have been given authority over, Come into our double-mindedness. Replace our double-mindedness with devotion. God, we are contending at this moment for you to change lives. God, we're contending at this moment for you to bring people back who've walked away. God, we're contending, Father, as sort of passion and intensity and commitment seems to be draining from your church at this point in time. God, we're praying that you actually raise oaks of righteousness. God, we love it when you pour out your spirit and we feel your spirit and we're touched by your spirit. But God, we don't just want that. We want an equipping. We don't just want the flowers. We want the lifelong relationship with you. So God, we lay down our idols. We recognize that in Australia, we have idols around our comfort. We lay that down before you. And we just pray, Father, that you move in new ways. We recognize we're at a time in the world where there is a call going out, a heralding trumpet for those who want to say yes to the next season, where you renew your church and you renew us. So Jesus, we pray that we can say yes in this moment. Come Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Britt had a word last week when God was moving and there's the sense that 
what God wanted to do was actually move in different ways. And my sense is that there are waves which flowed last week, that there's going to be a period of different waves. My friend Alan Emerson had a word before lots of different reports of God moving around the world came in, and his, his prophetic word was that he felt the next great revival was the still, small voice that actually came after Elijah was running in fear. And I think some of us have been running in fear. We're afraid to take responsibility. We're afraid to take authority. You don't have to. God's willing to do this for you. You just have to say yes to him and lay down your double minus and just say, come into my kingdom. Let your will be done in my kingdom as it is in heaven. So what I'd like to do is he'd like to get us to stand at this moment. The band's going to play. But it's also just like to offer the opportunity. If you want to come forward and you're sensing that God is asking you to lay down your kingdoms, your queendom, your state, big or small that may be, I have a strong sense that the Lord is asking us to say no to double-mindedness. I have a strong sense the Lord is asking us to say no to an acceptance of a kind of mediocre, comfortable Christianity that too often defines the Australian church. And I also believe that some of us have had flowers and chocolates from the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit wants to dwell with us. So what we're going to do is we're just going to open up the front and if people want to come forward, we can do the same thing as we did last week. If you see someone down here, if you're a follower of Jesus and you see someone and you want to pray for them, come forward and pray for them. Just ask them. Just ask their permission if you want to pray. And perhaps you've got a mate down the front who you want to pray for or someone from your friends or family or whatever, someone you know. Please come down and pray for them. So come, Spirit, work amongst us.